right, well, thank you guys for praying, and Farley, thank you all for, for serving and loving Jesus. Um, first, I'm Steve Hambrick, glad you're here, uh, pastor here at Vintage, and uh, got a special day for lots of reasons. Uh, one of those, obviously, is today is the Super Bowl. Everybody excited about the Super Bowl? Yeah, I mean, get up. Um, so, you know, I had a dream uh, last Saturday about, excuse me, two Saturdays ago about the Green Bay Atlanta game. I, I missed the actual final score by one touchdown from what I saw in my dream. And so I did not have a dream last night, but I did have kind of an awakening that I saw on social media. Let me kind of show you real quick. Jesus of the Falcons, Finney told Lazarus, rise up. And, uh, man, so we're really believing that word uh, this this morning. And... Um, yeah, I'll just say, so I know, do we already do the Patriots fan that Timothy asks? I know Matt. Where is Matt? That Matt's, Matt's one? Yeah. Yeah, who wants to take him out of the service today? And uh, yeah, just go home, man. <laughs> no, we are excited about that. Got to guys have fun tonight watching the game. All right, well, hey, let's dive in. Before I dive in, just real quick, so just so you all will know, uh, today is Scott Crawford's birthday. And, uh, and if you see Gerilyn, her birthday was on Wednesday, right? And so, yeah, so it's fun times. We're going out on Wednesday morning for their birthday. It'll be fun. All right. So say happy birthday to them before you leave today. All right. So let's dive in this morning. We are in family resolutions. Uh, if you, if you know, you know what, all know what resolutions are. We make them at the beginning of each year, these personal resolutions. And resolutions are these things we just, we decide to, to do or to not do. Right to do or to not do to enhance our life, and, that, and the idea of resolutions is that usually they are very person centric. We make them about something that we see for our personal lives. We want to lose weight, we want to get in shape, whatever it may be. So we resolve. We make this decision to do or to not do something for the purpose of enhancing our life. But here's the thing: personal resolutions are much different than family resolutions. Family resolutions revolve around Paul's words in the book of First Corinthians when he says, or actually in Acts, and he says this about the Corinthians. He says, I resolved to know nothing among you except Christ crucified so that your faith would not rest on my words but on the power of Jesus. And so it literally then defined his whole livelihood and his whole life and the expression of how he related to the Corinthian church. He basically said, I made this, I was Christ-centered. He came in, looked at the Corinthians, and he saw them in light of Jesus, what they needed from Jesus, what they needed for Jesus to, to, to grow in their life, to, to, to be a massive part of their life. And so he says, I resolved in that moment, focused on Christ to figure out what was best for them. And that's what sets Family resolutions apart from personal ones is that in the moment we are, they are Christ centered, focused on what is best for the person that I'm in relationship with. They're Christ centered. I'm thinking about, thinking about Christ and what he wants to do, what he's longing to do in the person that I'm in relationship with. And so last week, we started talking about marriages because in the context of our life, our primary relationship, all of you know, is Jesus. But if we are married then, the second dairy relationship, the second 
priority relationship in our life is now with our spouse. And so we began looking at Genesis chapter 2, 24 and 25 and, and talking about this foundation of marriage. Because it's important to recognize. God comes and establishes marriage in Genesis chapter 2 with Adam and Eve, the first man, the first woman. And he says this, that is why a man leaves his father and mother, is united to his wife. They become one flesh. Adam and Eve were both naked and they felt no shame. It's important to recognize when Jesus is asked about divorce, when he's asked about marriage, he doesn't create some new ideology or some new philosophy or some new teaching. He just looks back to the foundation and he quotes Genesis 2, 24 and 25. And he said, because he's Jesus, he adds one phrase to it. And what God puts together, man should not separate. He literally comes back and says, the idea of marriage, it was true from the beginning. It's true to today, true to, to his time. And he would say it's still true for us today. Genesis 2, 24 and 25. So we looked at two pillars, two pillars of marriage last week. We're going to look at two more this week, but I want to remind you what we talked about last week. The first pillar is the pillar of priority. The pillar of priority. So the foundation is Jesus, right? We build our marriages upon Jesus, then we build these pillars that define our relationship. The first pillar, the pillar of priority. We all understand what priorities are. Priorities are things we primarily pursue, things that get the best of our energy. And I don't mean just our physical energy. I mean our emotional energy. Like you understand what I'm saying, right? I can come home and be with my children and give them my physical, my physical energy, but my mind could be completely elsewhere, and so what they get is they don't get my emotional energy. I can have my emotions wrapped up in a job, in a relationship, and something going on. And so they may get my physical presence. They're not getting my emotional energy. And my question we began with in this, in this priority is the thing that is your priority is the thing that gets the primary emotional energy in your life. And so I asked you to do this. I want you to create two lists. I want you to create a list of your preferred priorities and your actual priorities. Your preferred priorities and your actual priorities. Let's put the picture up here of our preferred priorities. So all of us should be able to say, in preference, this is what, this is what our life should look like. God first, spouse second, children third, church family fourth, extended family slash friends fifth, work and career sixth, hobbies seventh. We should look at life and say, the best of our energies, the emotional energies of our life, this is what's happening right here. Our preferred list is this. This is what we want to express. This is what we want in our lives. But the question we have to ask is, what, is our, what are our actual priorities? Like, what is actually getting your energy, the best of your emotional energy? What's getting the best of your time? And so you have an actual list. And here's the thing about it. You all day long can make yourself believe this is your actual list. I would dare you to ask what your spouse to create a list. Won't you go ask your children what they think your list is? This is not guilt-driven. It's just actually being honest. Being honest about, am I actually expressing with my actions and my energies 
what I want my preferred list to be. Because that's where we begin in our marriage. It has to be the pillar of priority. Jesus first and our spouse second and our children third on down the list. What is the actual versus the preferred? And I would say this. Some of us need to set a family resolution today. As I focus on Jesus, I say, Jesus, this is how it works. In thinking about my spouse, and I'm looking at you, Jesus, what is best for her? And am I making her my priority with my time, my, un- my time, my money, my energy, and my resources? She getting the best of who I am. If, if we do that, make her my my resolution of making her my priority after Jesus, then everything begins to shift. The second pillar is the pillar of pursuit. The pillar of pursuit in marriage means we are to pursue our spouse, go after him or her, right? It means literally this idea of the words united in verse 24 is the same word, the KJV, cleave. It literally means with, to, to, with great energy to cling to our spouse zealously. It's where we get the word glue. I literally choose to adhere myself or to glue myself to my spouse literally every single day. I wake up and pursue Jesus, adhere myself to him. Then I choose my spouse again to win her again, right? To to adhere myself, to glue myself to her. And the idea is it speaks to intentionality and hear this. All of you who were driven by your feelings, it requires hard work. And the problem lies for us in the fact that we just don't feel like pursuing. We just don't. Because we're busy. Because we're tired. Because it's not really going to mean anything because they're not really going to love me back. Or they're not pursuing me. I just don't feel like it. And the nature of pursuit is that it's something that we choose because we're committed, not because we feel like it. We've been lost in our generation, in our culture by only doing things because we feel like it. We Listen, we've bought into the lie that we are only motivated by our feelings. And that's not biblical. The nature of the deepest word of a love of love that we looked at last week in Revelation chapter 2, when, when John speaking about the relationship of Jesus to the church at Ephesus, says you do a lot of great things, but one thing you lack, you have lost your first agape. You've lost your first love. Repent and do the things you did at first. The word agape is a love that we express that's birthed out of our commitment, not it's not based on emotion or feeling. Our marriages are to be focused and grounded on agape, a pursuit of my spouse, even when I don't feel like it, to do it anyway, because I am committed to pursue the pillar of pursuit, not birthed out of feeling, but with intentionality and work, trusting that it, as I do the right thing, the thing I did it first to win my spouse every day, then feeling and emotion will follow. That's how it works. That's agape. Jesus died. Not because he was super pumped about getting on the cross. He did it because he knew he was committed to us, agape, and his commitment led him and drove him to the cross. 
That's the nature of sacrifice every day, the nature of pursuit. Now, with that in mind, with that in mind, our work and faithful commitment to the pillar of pursuit, it will require this intentionality and energy. We must give ourselves to it. So it speaks to them to the paradox, maybe of relationship for us. A paradox, something, right, that, that looks one way, but it's actually another, and they're kind of go hand in hand is simply this. And I want you to hear this phrase. Please listen. The work of God versus our work. God's work versus our work. Let me just say this to you, good Christians. You can pray all day long for your marriage, and it will still be terrible. If you don't put forth energy and effort to then obey God in action. There has to be a marriage of Jesus and his work and us in our work. I can spend all day long just investing into my marriage and I love my spouse and totally forget God and my marriage will suffer. There's a man, there's a beautiful piece in this. A.W. Tezer talked about this. He said, talking about praying for revival. He says, sometimes we need to stop praying for revival and just be obedient to what God's calling us to do. And so for us in the context of marriage, like, we trust in God. And we, we trust the work of God. We pray all day long. And then we stop and say, now, God, what work are you calling me to do? What level of commitment are you calling me to engage? Where do I need to act? And we marry. That's why Jesus said the two greatest command, the great commandment is the work of God. Love God by your heart, soul, and mind. But the second is just like it. They have to be married. You express action and love your neighbor. Do you see that? They go hand in hand. It's the paradox. We, we, we prefer God. We, we chase God. We prefer our spouse. We chase after our spouse. And they're married. They don't contradict. They work together. It's this relationship. And so what I'm getting at is this. Don't be hyper-spiritual in your marriage. And don't be overly fleshy either. Marry the work of God and then your work. The energy of God and your energy. This is just common sense. It's really the book of James. Faith without works is dead. I can believe I've got all day long to save my marriage while I never spend time with my spouse. That's stupid. Right? Doesn't work that way. Dually engaging. So with that, let's look at the third pillar. The pillar of possession. Verse 24, the end of it. It says, and they shall become one. Or one flesh. They shall become one. They're united and they shall become one. This pillar, the pillar of possession, is the key to establishing trust and establishing intimacy in a relationship. I want you to just get the picture. You understand this if you had a, probably, if, if I did your wedding, I said this in your wedding. It says these two people, two individuals, have been living disconnected independent and separate lives. The picture I want you to have is that there is there are two rooms with a wall in between and each of their lives represent one of these rooms. They are disconnected, they're living independent lives and they're living separate lives and all of a sudden in the moment of marriage, right? In the moment of marriage, God miraculously takes two individual, disconnected, independent and separate beings and he makes them one. It's a miracle. Only God can do that. It's crazy. He doesn't put them side by side. He intertwines them and he makes them one. They shall become one flesh. They shall become 
one. The two living separate come together. Marriage is a complete union. This is important. Marriage is a complete union, which all things that were separated or previously owned and managed individually, things that caused them to be separate, things that were individual are now owned and they are managed jointly. The picture of the room. There's a wall built up. We get married. Guess what happens? The wall comes down and everything that was in each person's room now is put into the one room. Representing marriage, so everything that was mine is yours. Everything that impacted me impacts you. Everything I think about now becomes your thoughts. Everything I wrestled with now becomes your wrestlings. There's no, there's no personal closet that says mine or individual or Steve over here says, you can have all the stuff and I put a few things into the closet. No, everything. It's like literally when I came into the marriage, right? Randall had a full-time job. I didn't. I brought in a little bit of debt. Guess what happened? Her, my debt became her debt. Anybody else like that? Any college debt? It's like, oh, my gosh. You're like, I'm going to raise my hand because that still makes me sad, right? No, it's like I came in and she literally, it's like my debt became, well, became our debt. It was no longer mine. It was ours. It was no longer mine. There is ours. Anything in marriage that is not, listen, Anything that is not willfully submitted to what happened? There's a fire over here. Any firemen or women in here? Is it? That's it, man. That's the Patriots right there, baby. That's the Patriots blowing that fire out, Matt. Bam! Take that, jerk. How are you even here at church? Today? All right, so now. Now, hear this phrase. Let's come back. Yes. Yes, I know. Thank you, Matt. Timothy. Where's Big Doug when we need him? Just to walk him out of here. All right. Now, anything in marriage. I'll come back. Anything in marriage that is not willfully submitted to ownership of the other person is held outside the union. Anything in marriage that's not willfully brought out of the closet into the one big room so that everybody can own this, the both of us can own this as one, is literally producing legitimate separation. So if you in your life, you have this individualistic, independent mindset of making my, making my decisions in the context of our marriage, then it's separation. If you think about your, my dreams in the context of our marriage, or my future, or my finances, or my debt, whatever it may be, then there's a legitimate separation. The question you have to ask in the context of your marriage is what are you unwilling, unwilling to surrender? What are you unwilling to surrender? Is it money, family, careers? Is it children? Are you unwilling to surrender your dreams or your hobbies? To surrender your friendships? Maybe you're unwilling to surrender control in your life. When there is something that we have that we will not share with our spouse, it's like we're telling him or her that that thing or that person is more important to us than them. We must choose to die to independence. Choose to embrace interdependence. Independence is simple. It's talking about mine and my life and my feelings and mine. Interdependence says, by choice, our life. 
It's not codependence where I need to be needed and I need you or I can't survive. It's like I choose to need you. I choose to become one. I choose to do life. I choose to submit everything in my room and in my closet to you. Intimacy is not built solely or primarily on great sex or deep conversation. True intimacy is created when two people so intertwine their lives with one another that one cannot determine where one life ends and the other begins. True intimacy, it's on the screen, is created when two people so intertwine their lives with one another that one cannot determine where one life ends and the other begins. One of the things that Paul gets at, even speaking about the physical nature, and this is important, he says this in chapter 7, verse 3 and 4 of 1 Corinthians, says, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Like, you could just sit in that verse and go, is there some deeper meaning in this? Like, what's he really trying to say? Because what it sounds like is that my body is literally, I've given my body even over to my spouse when the room, the wall and the room comes down, and I have to have sex with her, or vice versa. Is that what it's saying? It's exactly what Paul's saying. Why? It's important to know this. Because in chapter 7, verse 1, the Corinthians are coming and saying, hey, it is more spiritual to just remain spiritual. So we're going to tell every married couple that sex is bad and that it's against the best of God's law. And we're going to tell them to not have sex because that shows who they are in their flesh. And we're going to be spiritual. So we're telling everyone to stop having sex. And Paul basically writes and says, you can't do that. You weren't designed that way. Her body belongs to him, and his body belongs to her. And he goes on chapter 5 and says, verse 5 and says, And if you refrain, literally sin will creep into your life and destroy you. So he's coming and saying, when you get married, you each become each other's. Not so that you can use and abuse, because that's the way the world looks at it. You're thinking it in the light of Jesus, where he comes and says, he says in other places, what does he say about marriage? Husband is to love the wife as Christ loves the church and to honor her, to prefer her, to die for her. He goes on to say to love your neighbor, to love your spouse as you love your spouse. Therefore, you would never force your spouse to do anything that's uncomfortable, anything that would be you making them do anything. No, you would both so equally honor one another that you would make sure that you were both comfortable, you were both confident, and you were both being loved in the moment. Paul's just making it really clear. This idea of possession is a very big thing. Literally everything, even including their bodies, belongs to one another. Anything which is not mutually owned and controlled by both partners, it will lead to division. It will lead to problems. So two just real practical, simple questions. Are you completely surrendered to your spouse? Are you completely surrendered to your spouse? Is there something you were holding back? Where are you in your life with the things you're surrendering, the things to let go of? What are you holding on the inside? What are you protecting? What is you 
individualistic. What is your thing? Like one of my stories for us, and it's super simple, but God like, had to really challenge my heart is one day I find Raylan, and she's going through all my texts on my phone. Right? And, and, and I, I went, like, right? I was like, what are you doing? She's like, I'm just going through your text. And your phone's my phone. My phone's your phone. I mean, you can see all of mine. I'm like, but, but that, that's, that's my phone, right? And, and she's like, are you trying to hide something? I mean, no, 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 right? No, that's just, it's my phone. It's, it's my, it's my text. Like, but, it, but I mean, yeah, but it's, but it's, I mean, what's, what's going, don't you want to, like, is it okay? I mean, what's wrong? And all of a sudden, I had to literally go have this heart check of, like, is it really a big deal if my wife comes and reads my text? Because what would I want to hide anyway? Now, obviously, there's sometimes I look at her and say, listen, so-and-so's text is about this. I can't talk to you about that. I have this pastoral privilege thing going on. But beyond that, you can see my text is in the moment. God was challenging my heart. He was challenging what I was putting in the closet of mine. What was I trying to protect that was mine? Here's the deal. I'm still an individual and I'm still uniquely made, but I have been gone from, but I'm no longer independent. I'm interdependent. An interdependent relationship actually produces and brings out the greatest uniqueness in me as she challenges and sharpens me to become the person I've been called to be. We are interdependent. We have chosen to need one another, and if I die, she'll be fine because she's not codependent. She's interdependent, and she's not independent as if doing her own life. She is interdependent doing life together, our life. Second, the fourth pillar, the fourth pillar, second one this morning, is the pillar of purity. Verse two, chapter 2, verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Yes, the idea of nakedness, don't make it awkward, speaks to the fact they had no clothes on. But much deeper, in a much deeper spiritual sense, it's also speaking to the reality that they were naked before God and one another, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. They were completely exposed before God. They were completely transparent before one another. They shared themselves totally in an atmosphere of intimacy and openness. No walls up. Complete transparency. Everything out in the open. Nothing hidden. Physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. They shared themselves. Where do you, where do we feel shame in being exposed mentally with our thoughts? Emotionally, with our feelings spiritually in the context of our relationship with God and where do we feel exposed physically in the context literally of our physical body where do we embrace hiddenness those places that we feel compelled to hide in our marriage where do you hide like everyone should just stop and recognize I'm not talking about your spouse I'm talking to you Where are you hidden? Like, I say that, and you literally find your... This is what happens. We immediately see something, and we go we go like this. feel like it's not there. Right? Because the Falcons game is later. I don't want to be depressed during the Falcons game. I don't work in my spiritual life during the Falcons game, right? No. Like, there's these places of hiddenness, these places physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually that we, we hide from. We hide from our spouse. So they were going, oh, I wish he would shut up. I should have gone to some other church this morning. They told me I'm awesome and everything, right? It's like, no, man, we have to let God expose. 
Marriage is to be a place of transparency. We cannot pull back. But the reasons that we pull back, and there's, maybe there's more than these, but two of the primary reasons, hear this, is shame and fear. Shame and fear. Shame, obviously, is the opposite of unashamed in verse 25. Shame is most often times an outgrowth of sin, whether it's sin that we commit and we choose or sins committed against us. And as an obstacle, it creates distance between us. So let me just kind of lay out a scenario in the physical realm. So I talk to couples all the time who they have this shame that defines them because they had a physical relationship with someone who was not their spouse before they got married, and they live with a level of guilt and shame with the things that they did or whatever it may have been, right? And they come in, so their sex life is, it has a tension to it. Sorry if kids in the room, it's this reality of marriage. Sex is a beautiful thing. Make sure your kids know that in marriage. They need to know that. You need to tell them that. You need to teach them that. Don't let culture, t- don't let culture t- teach them about sex. Don't let the church tell them sex is bad. Sex is beautiful, and you should teach your kids that because one thing that I'm, this is i didn't go to here in the first service let me just say this real quick about sex one of my great tensions is that christians are told forever sex is bad 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 right and all of a sudden you think on your marriage night it's supposed to be great it goes from being bad to holy like this our brains don't do that they just don't do that i mean people i mean 10 years in like i just can't get over the fact that i feel like i'm dirty when i have sex i was told all my life sex was bad no, it's a beautiful thing. We disciple our children in all areas, including sex, right? So in the context now of our marriage, someone does something though inappropriate, and then they have shame from that in the context of their marriage. They go to have sex, and it's like, oh. Or what about this? Remember how in everything that ever that bad that happened to your life happened in middle school? Remember that? And remember in middle school, like one of those kids walks up to you, like there's a guy that maybe you like, there's a girl that you like, and they're like, oh my gosh, like, like you're, you're so ugly. Right? Or, oh my gosh, like you're so fat. And then when you're 30 years old in the bathroom and your husband walks in and you're afraid to expose yourself physically because someone sinned against you when you were in junior high and told you you were fat and ugly, and so you try to hide yourself because you're, you've been shamed because of somebody else's sin. Or you cannot let your husband get to have sex in the dark because you want your husband to see you. Or you're afraid to actually wake up and, and your husband see you without makeup because you know because you're ugly because someone told you because someone sinned against you. And so you have to wear makeup and never see you without it. Someone sinned against you. And you now walk in shame. Just real quick. How many, how many of you know you have imperfect bodies? Raise your hand, seriously. Raise them up really high. Okay. <clears throat> this right here? You all see that right there? I mean, it's like, I worked hard for this, man. It looks funny naked, I'm just saying, right? I look in the mirror, and I'm like, look at that, right? I literally stand up in the morning, and it kind of shines. The, sun, the light shines off my belly under the wall. It looks three times as big, man. It's like, I mean... Uh, Randall loves it, right? So now here's the deal. You know what? Everybody pay attention. Now I can't just let myself go, right? 
But this was God's gift to Randall. Come on, get an amen. Do you know that your body as is was God's gift to your spouse? As is. Doesn't require money. Doesn't require nips and tucks. It's literally God's gift. And I wonder if we've believed the lies we've been sinned against by our culture and people that say, man, saggy butts, saggy boobs, saggy eyebrows, big old bellies, man, that's not God's best. We believe lies we've been sinned against. And sin is the single greatest hindrance to the ability to openly relate to one another. Sin is the single greatest obstacle for us bring, like bringing down the wall and really having one room. Two scenarios I've heard on multiple occasions. This is not foreign to you either. You've all heard them too. Husband walks in guilt because of porn addiction. There's a porn addiction. I don't know what the number is. I've known back in the past, between 80 to 90% of men struggle with, have struggled or are struggling with some level of porn addiction. And so what do they do? They build that wall. They build that little place in their room. What do they have? They have a hidden life. Negatively impacts their sex drive, their ability to enjoy intimacy with their wife because they have shame and they have guilt. They live in this hidden world, living a, a secret life, and, the, and they think it's only affecting me. And the spouse is going, what's wrong with me? Or over here we have a wife who goes on some sort of spending spree. I use this because the only thing I can think of the other night. A wife goes on some sort of spending spree, and she hides, the, she hides the clothes literally in the car or some hidden place in her closet, right? She makes sure she pays the bill that month because she's trying to hide this thing. And what happens now? There's a separation. The husband's like, man, what's going on here? Like, I just feel the separation. What happened? What's going on? Right again. You could you can reverse those. I mean, the 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 porn the, the porn addiction for women has increased to over fifty percent in the United States of America, over fifty percent. It may be higher than that. I just used that number because I remember it was some, somewhere along those lines. Sin is deadly. Sin kills relationships. Whether it's the sin I commit against Randall or the sin she commits against me, sin is deadly. It kills relationships. Sin only leads to death. And any time we try to marry death and then the life in relationship, it won't mix. They are unmixable. How do we know this? Because Jesus had to come to redeem us from death on the cross to bring us to life. Because they don't mix. That's why some people, listen... Some of your friends, some of you will spend eternity separated from God because you choose sin, which leads to death and death and life cannot mix. They are unmixable. Jesus had to redeem us in our lives. A spouse has a right to be concerned about every area of life in their partner's life. Anything that person does will directly affect the other sin in our life, even if it's just one sin, will ultimately affect us and affect our spouse and it will affect our marriage. The enemy comes to kill, steal and destroy. And listen, he is only looking for one door. 
If a robber comes to my door, wants to break in and steal my, my stuff, he just needs me to leave one door unlocked. doesn't need all of them unlocked. doesn't make any sense. He just needs one. He can come into my house and steal everything that he wants through one open door. Every sin undealt with, whether it's sins that we've committed or sins committed against us that we deal with and find healing and redemption from, will ultimately produce death in our relationship. What is the area in your life where purity is threatened by sin? Is it sex life? Is it your finances? Is it your words from your mouth? Is it your addictions? Is it white lies that you think are hurting anybody? Listen, is it your independence? You say mine all the time rather than our. Intimacy is only cultivated in the place where walls are down. Trust has been cultivated and shame has no residence in either of us. Intimacy is only cultivated in the place where walls are down, trust has been cultivated, and shame has no residence in either of us. Four steps to purity in our relationship. You can add as many steps as you want to, right? These are just four basic ones. Number one, take responsibility for your behavior. For your behavior. Don't focus on your spouse. Don't look at their sin Don't tell them what they're doing wrong. It just pushes them away. You own your crap. You clean up your crap. Focus on you. Be honest and transparent with yourself and deal with your sin. Deal with your closets and your life. Trust God to expose it in your spouse and he will convict them. Number two. Admit your faults. If you sin against your spouse, break down the walls of pride and ask for forgiveness. Forgiveness looks something like this. I am sorry for whatever it is. I was, I'm going to own it because I was wrong. And will you forgive me? The worst thing to do in the context of asking forgiveness is go, Hey, I'm, I'm sorry. And then move on. You know what that is? That's a cop out. You know it. You're afraid to own it. You're afraid to name your faults. You have your pride built up. Say, look at, look her in the eye. Say, listen, I sinned by eating your donut. I really enjoyed it, but I'm sorry for doing it. Will you please forgive me? We teach our kids this all the time. Literally, every time I ask forgiveness, like, what are you sorry for? <laughs> right? Every time. Admit your faults. Number three, and four go together. Forgive. Listen, these are important. These last two are important. You've got to hear these two. Forgive when sinned against. If your spouse owns it and they ask for forgiveness, it may be difficult. It may take you a moment. It may take you even a season because it may be a really big deal. But in time, you're working towards really owning, forgiving them. And when you do, you don't throw it back in their face six months down the road. They come, they come to you, something happens, and you say, well, you did blah, blah, blah. And then what happens in that? You just send. You can't throw it back in their face. Model for your spouse how you want to be treated when you fail. Why? And here's the point. Don't 
put expectations on your spouse that you don't have of yourself. Aren't we unfair with our spouse sometimes and put expectations on them that this is supposed to be perfect all the time? If they mess up even a little bit, we jump all, just jump all over and jump down their case without wondering, without thinking about, well, you know, actually I'm a sinner too and I have fault in me and I'm going to fall and sin here pretty soon too. And I wonder how they would want me to treat them. So I will treat them the way that I want to be treated. And if we both do that, we live in a house of grace of mercy, compassion, honesty, and forgiveness and justice. Dealing with our sin, being honest and open about it, for asking forgiveness, giving forgiveness. Because why? Because I am a, the whole phrase, I am a sinner saved by grace like everybody else. And I want to treat them knowing that in time I'm going to fail too. Do you have unhealthy, unrealistic expectations of who your spouse is supposed to be and you hold them to an unrealistic level? That's why for you pray for them. You know why? Because your spouse is going to sin against you. They are. And so you pray for them, you pray for you, and you pray for your marriage. That God will give you the grace in those moments to move through that. Let's pray. Father, we bless you and thank you for this morning. Thank you for your presence. Father, we acknowledge what you already know, that marriages are hard. They require effort. They require energy. They require honesty. They require us looking back at our weaknesses. They expose our weaknesses. They expose our shortcomings, they expose all these places in us, Lord. We're even here today going, I know we should talk about this, but I wish we weren't because it hits too close to home. It makes me feel tired talking about all of this. And I'm asking Jesus, we would not forget the paradox. These are the moments we run to Jesus. We can't do marriage apart from Jesus. It requires us first running to Jesus first and primarily loving God with all of our heart all of our soul and all of our mind, that we run to you, we, we, we learn from you, God, that we receive from you, God, that we, we fully embrace you. And that, God, you then empower us loving our neighbor, loving our spouse. God, I pray for the people, Lord, even as we talk today, God, I recognize there are some like, well, you just don't know my marriage, and you just don't know how my, how my husband handles my finances. You just don't know how my husband hurt me or the words that were spoken against me. And God, all that does, was when you highlight those things, you're saying, hey, boom, that's it. That's the area I have to move in. That's the area where I have to lead both of you. Father, I pray you to give us grace today to, to go to counseling. Because some of us need someone else to come into our life and help. Pray we would suck up our pride today and be willing to ask for help in the areas, Lord, where we're messing up and missing it. Father, we invite you today to produce life in us, which only occurs, Lord, as we're honest and turn everything over to you. Have your way today in Jesus' name. This morning, I invite our ministry teams to go ahead and come forward.
So we respond on Sundays. We have offering baskets right here. We have an offering box in the back and a giving kiosk out in the foyer. And all we're saying, if you came ready, willing, and able to give today in obedience to God's call to give offering and tithes, this is where you make that happen. That's an act of worship. Communion available every Sunday. Why? Because we want to celebrate the good news and the gospel of Jesus that he came, that he died for us to redeem us, then he was resurrected, and the fullness of the gospel then is that he sent his Holy Spirit then to empower us to love him and to love our neighbor. We celebrate that right here. Ministry teams are here for anything that you feel like it would be good to have someone as a friend, a family come alongside of you and simply to pray with you. So you're not alone. Because you're not alone. This morning you respond as the Lord leads. Let him put his finger on things. Stop stop turning away from the places he's putting his finger. And let him begin to do this work of naming. Listen, this is it. Let him begin putting his finger on areas of family resolutions. Because I'm focused on you, Jesus. I will do what's best for my spouse so that they can know you better. Let's make those resolutions this morning. You guys have a great week.